Maryland counted 30 new confirmed COVID-19-related deaths, bringing fatalities in the state to a total 7,479. Virginia added over 2,300 new cases. Members of the Montgomery County Education Association voted no confidence Tuesday in their school system's plan to reopen in March. 97% of the union's 200 elected representatives supported the no confidence resolution. Teachers are demanding more staffing, a coherent contact tracing and testing program, and the chance to be vaccinated before returning to classrooms. The union said the county's reopening plan, quote, cannot be successfully implemented without negatively impacting students' learning experience, end quote. And the NASA Perseverance rover successfully landed on the Martian surface in the last hour. It marks the third spacecraft to reach Mars this month. Congratulations to everyone on the team. Weather in Washington, D.C. right now is 32 degrees and overcast. In New York City, 28 degrees with light snow. For WPFW in Washington and WBAI New York, I'm Chris Banger-Drowns. Thanks for listening. The time now is one minute past 5 p.m. Stay tuned for Driving Forces. Excuse me. Driving Forces with Jeff Simmons and Celeste Katz-Martson here on WBAI New York, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org online. WBAI New York, 99.5 FM, and streaming live via WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, a weekly show that dives into the big issues affecting our city, our state, and our country. I'm Celeste Katz-Martson, here as always with the one and only Jeff Simmons. Jeff, great to be with you. Can you say my name correctly? Because I can't do it today. <laughs> That's what happens when we have too much coffee. We speak too quickly. Celeste Katz Marston, thank nice. you so much for being with me today. And I should warn you uh, and our listeners, because remember, we're not in studio these days amid COVID-19. We're working out of our homes. So you likely will hear a number of sound effects outside my apartment building here in Jackson Heights. There are lots of snowblowers and uh, there's been a few sirens, unfortunately, and the hissing of the radiator. So I'm just preparing you for that. And if you hear any dogs barking in the background, I may be the guilty party, but it could also be Jeff. So we want to uh, want to just let you know about that. But thanks for joining us this afternoon. Definitely want to officially wish everyone a great Nuller Lunar New Year. Uh, I am just uh, getting there today. Uh, so Gong Shi Fatsai to everybody who is listening. Um, you know, it's it's a really happy time of year, but at the same time, you know, Jeff and I were talking about a little bit earlier that we were, uh, you know, very saddened to see that there have been a number of attacks on Asian Americans uh, in the city and elsewhere. Uh, at least three attacks that I've seen some, uh, some reporting on this week. One of them was uh, outside a bakery, a couple, I think, think on subway platforms really something i think that uh, all of us should be concerned about jeff 
Yeah, and an incident that just happened here in in Queens in the last few days. Uh, there was a celebrity, Olivia Munn, Munn who uh, flagged this for people because it was mm. a friend of hers, uh, who or a relative, a, a friend of a relative. Uh, or something like that, who had been attacked. It looks like they have a suspect in that. But I've been following this coverage as well. And think about it. Celeste. Last year, amid COVID-19, where we saw an escalation of this, of incidents, uh, and just a lot of xenophobia, a lot of fear of Asian communities, because, you know, and look, we did have a president at that time who inflamed those uh, those uh, passionate uh, actions against uh, the Asian communities. Yeah, and we've we've seen some of that uh, pulled together in a report. For example, the Asian American Bar Association of New York had a report out uh, called A Rising Tide of Hate and Violence Against Asian Americans in New York During COVID-19. And they said that uh, these incidents really spiked against uh, East Asian, South Asian, Muslim, Sikh, Hindu, and Middle Eastern communities. So it's really not just limited to sort of uh, residents of uh, ethnic enclaves. This is something that has uh, really been an issue. And I think that uh, another thing to be concerned about was, uh, at the very least, some of these incidents are not being investigated or prosecuted uh, as hate crimes. These are seen as sort of more run-of-the-mill assaults uh, or incidents or harassment and so on. And, you know, there's been some discussion about whether uh, we are taking some of these things seriously enough and whether we're calling them what they are in some cases. I'm I'm not the uh, investigating agent agency here. But certainly that question has been raised about uh, how many of these incidents should be prosecuted as hate crimes. Yeah. And before we get to our first guest, the only other thing I want to mention in here uh, was just about the explosion uh, in or the significant rise in incidents of, of, of hate and violence across the country over the last few years. As our listeners know, one of the things that I had uh, focused on because of my my regular job uh, was the incident of the Confederate flag being tied outside the front door or to the front door of the Museum of Jewish Heritage, a living memorial to the Holocaust in lower Manhattan and how it, what was unclear was whether that could be people uh, the individuals who did this, whether they could be prosecuted or charged under any type of hate crime laws. Uh, and to this point, there have been no arrests in that, despite the fact that there are uh, there is a videotape. Yes, I'm breaking news on that here, Celeste, that there was a videotape of them. Wow. So that's interesting. So we do have uh, some visual evidence of, of what went on there. And, you know, obviously, I, I join everybody who's saying that that is an appalling, appalling incident and uh, very much concerned about that. So what we're going to be starting out with on today's show is something that Celeste, you know, had had flagged for me. And it was really I'm glad she did. This is going to be of interest to a lot of our listeners. This week, Governor Andrew Cuomo announced the that the New York gestational surrogacy law is now in effect. That law is designed to help LGBTQ plus couples and couples who are struggling with fertility as they start families of their own. So what does this mean? ABC News described it this way, and here I'll quote, 
The new law allows gestational surrogacy on a commercial basis involving a surrogate who is not genetically related to the embryo. An egg is removed from the intended mother, fertilized with sperm, and then transferred to a surrogate in contrast to so-called traditional surrogacy that involves an egg from the surrogate. So that just means that the baby being carried has no blood relationship to the person carrying it. Uh, I'm going to, because I know we have the, our guest on the line, I'll just mention yeah. that since gestational surrogacy wasn't a legal option in New York, people like State Senator Brad Hoyleman and his husband have spoken about going elsewhere, uh, in their case, California, to find a surrogate. But in some cases, couples faced very high costs because surrogacy wasn't a real part of their health insurance. But now that may change and families may find new hope in having a child or children. And that brings us to our first guest today. We are uh, happy to welcome to the program New York State Assembly member Amy Pollan. Uh, she serves the 88th Assembly District in Westchester. She is chair of the Committee on Corporations, Authorities, and Commissions, and she serves on the Committees on Rules, Education, and Health. Her agenda includes state government reform, health care, children and families, and lots of other issues. So Assembly member Pollan wrote and sponsored the bill that eliminated the statute of limitations for rape, and she sponsored the uh, Landmark Trafficking Victims Protection and Justice Act. Hundreds of her bills have been signed into law, including the one that went into effect this week that we're going to talk about today. So Assemblymember Amy Pollan, welcome to Driving Forces here on WBAI. Thank you for having me. Really appreciate it. So uh, just to, to jump right in, uh, as we said, we did want to uh, welcome you to the program today to talk about the new uh, law in effect regarding gestational surrogacy agreements. So what is that law and why did we need it? We were uh, now, I believe, there's only one state left, Michigan, uh, that doesn't allow gestational surrogacy. Uh, I would like to argue that our law is the best. Um, some states don't regulate it, uh, therefore it's permitted, but there's no regulation. Other states actually have strong regulations, like California. Um, but we actually outlawed it. And as does Michigan now, we outlawed it. We did not allow uh, couples facing infertility or same-sex couples who uh, needed a, a womb to have the child. We did not permit it. Uh, so uh, so this is a change to the law that now uh, makes it legal to use a gestational surrogate right here in New York. Wonderful. So in terms of... Uh, you know, some people have objected to this, uh, honestly, uh, even uh, some people who are part of the LGBTQ community. Um, they've talked about it being pregnancy for a fee. Um, there's some questions about how it might apply to trans people and heterosexual relationships. You know, maybe explain a little bit about how you confronted some of the criticism in, in helping get this bill into law. Well, I think what helped was I had infertility issues. Uh, myself. And so I understood the pang of wanting to have a family and not being able to. So it's, um, it's a pang that um, it's indescribable unless you've gone through it. And it's, uh, so that's what drove me. Uh, um, so when opposition came up, uh, I was determined to combat it just from having had that personal experience knowing what having a family means to someone or a couple who cannot. 
So the opposition you're talking about really came out of uh, what I'm going to call the old-time feminist movement, you know, where the commodification of women's bodies uh, uh, was something that was talked about uh, uh, back in that day. And I would argue, and what this bill did for me, uh, more so than anything else, is it made me rethink and realize that feminism, you know, uh, moves with the time. That unless we listen to women now, uh, we are not true feminists. And it was uh, something that uh, I didn't, I wasn't prepared or didn't understand that I was going to learn. <laughs> uh, but uh, the the fact is that you know we were helping women. The other thing that um, uh, helped me uh, get to that point was I myself, you know, I ended up having three pregnancies and uh, had extraordinarily easy births and wonderful pregnancies. Uh, one of the things I remember mourning when I had my third child was I'm not going to be pregnant again. It wasn't even about having another child as much as, oh, my goodness, my body is never going to have that experience again. So I understood that a woman could have a positive experience having a child, There's, um, which is hard to believe uh, because most women do not have the most positive experience. But I did. So I got the fact that women could successfully have a pregnancy and want to have another one. Uh, and we, so, so the, for them... You know, we're not um, uh, using them in the way that was being portrayed. And, uh, you know, it was feared that it would be, um, uh, that people would be trafficked into being surrogates, and it would only be poor women being surrogates, and we were going to be um, forcing women. And I knew that wasn't the case based on my own example, based on my own experience. Uh, so, but we, but what we did is to ensure that it could never be the case in New York. That we we built in protections into our law that uh, are the strongest protections in the United States, in the world, I would argue, uh, for surrogates. So, if you're a surrogate in New York, you have protections beyond anywhere else. And I can tell you that if you're an intended parent, you want those protections. If you're a credible, you know, parents who want a child, you want the woman who's carrying that baby to be protected. So um, mm-hmm. I think uh, we struck the right balance. I um, I used to be part of the uh, what I'm going to say the old-time feminist group, and I still share a lot of those views. Um, but I also knew that it was time to uh, appreciate the women we were. Um, so I know. Uh that this has been something that you know Brad Hoyleman, your your uh, colleague in government, has also been concerned about and focused on for some time. In fact, full disclosure, I let Celeste know this. This is something my husband and I talked with Brad about quite some time ago when we were exploring this. And for us, one of the major barriers uh, was the the cost and how expensive it would be if we were to travel. Uh, he talked with us about, I think, San Diego, California, to, to do something like this. How does this legislation then make it much more, I mean, I hate saying cost effective, but, uh, you know, much more um, feasible 
uh, for people who now in New York want to proceed with something like this? No, absolutely. Look, it's still not a cheap option, right, because you still have to go through IVF and other, you know, and hire lawyers to have contracts and all that stuff. But the traveling expense was another additional burden that was, that was put on a family. And in addition to um, uh, the, the simple travel, thinking, oh, you're just going to um, go when the time when the baby comes, right? Um, firstly, uh, this big range, <laughs> you know, so if you're going to California, uh, you know, you could have a false alarm. Maybe there's a... Um, the, the woman goes into labor and then doesn't really deliver for, uh, you know, the false alarm, and you have to come back a week later. So there could be, and if your job doesn't permit you to stay there. So, it, you know, so the traveling could be very extensive, especially if you want to be part of the pregnancy itself. So, so that could be prohibitive onto itself. And the fact that we take that financial burden off of all of the others uh, will mean that more families can be created so going back to what we were talking about, and if you're just joining us, this is Driving Forces on WBAI New York 99.5 FM, and we're streaming live at WBAI.org. I'm Celeste Cast. Katz Marston. I am here with Jeff Simmons, and we're speaking today with Assembly Member Amy Paulin. We're talking about the new gestational surrogacy law, and uh, Assembly Member wanted to go back for one second to talk about uh, the surrogates themselves. We talk a lot about certainly the uh, the families that are trying to uh, to have a child or to expand their families, but you know there are some issues here about the rights of surrogates. Uh, what in this legislation uh, do we see as far as protecting the rights? So the people who are carrying uh, the babies here. Well, again, um, as I said before, you know, we have the most extensive protections. We actually have what we have in the law, which is a Bill of Rights. And that Bill of Rights entitles a woman to have her own representation uh, separate from the intended parents. It entitles her to have insurance protection, not just for uh, the pregnancy, but even uh, postpartum. Uh, uh, potential ailments and problems. Uh, it allows her to, if she wants, hire a mental health professional. Um, it allows her, if she wants, um, to, uh, you know, say she has a multiple pregnancy. It's her decision, you know, whether to, uh, to, uh, you know, abort potentially one fetus. Uh, and carry a single pregnancy. It's her choice if she doesn't want to do that. It's, it's all her choice. And, and uh, so her body uh, um, is protected by her, not by a third party that makes a, a deal. It is protected by her. So, you know, so we felt these were very important provisions to have it actually in the law, and I believe we're the only state that does that. And Assembly Member, I know uh, Celeste had mentioned that you've had hundreds of your bills signed into law. There's another one that is coming up uh, rather soon regarding setting tougher regulations regarding embryo storage, similar to the ways that tissue banks are regulated. Talk briefly about what the concern has been and what you think needs to change in the law. Uh, sure. So uh, perhaps because I've, I was working on the surrogacy bill or perhaps because just because. You know, um, uh, there was, um, uh, a, there's, I, I guess it might be opened by now, but it, it wasn't when I went to visit with the 
um, the group that was trying to open a facility to take better care of um, uh, embryos um, uh, and frozen eggs uh, than they are being right now. And it came out of their involvement in seeing uh, how these um, eggs and embryos were stored in other places. Because, you know, many women, older women, or women are getting older having children, and they're freezing their eggs. And you want to know that when they're frozen uh, or when they're unfrozen and you're using them, that indeed it's yours and, and it's been preserved properly. And that just was not happening. Uh, they told of horror stories of, uh, in other places where they worked where uh, the eggs would be transported uh, poorly from one place to another within the facility. Um, if they were being retrieved, they were, they were being stored um, with other um, eggs, so therefore they would be partially unfrozen. Um, uh, it was, they were horror stories. Uh, and, and in terms of identifying uh, them properly, we've heard stories of, of that not being the case and babies being born uh, in other uh, people's wounds so, uh, that, that were not theirs. And so um, they said, we need to do better. And, uh, and so this is a state-of-the-art facility, but they said we need certain things in the law to make sure that, that everybody's doing it better. You know, just because one, uh, uh, I'm going to say organization, not really, I mean one uh, business entity, so to speak, you know, is doing a better job, one medical facility, doesn't mean they all are. So they came to, to me with the problem that they saw and, you know, and I wrote a bill um, uh, to regulate these entities so that everyone now in New York, if they're freezing their eggs or they, um, they're freezing their embryo, um, uh, that it's being done in a manner that they can trust and in a manner that they know they're going to get their own um, uh, essential egg or embryo back when they want it. So that's, um, so that's what the bill does. It really regulates and, and cause and, and asks for certain guidelines and regulations that would preserve um, eggs and embryos. And Assembly Member, another measure you recently had a victory on, again with uh, Senator Hoylman, was the Walking Wall Trans Repeal. Uh, which, where I live in Jackson Heights, that was a big concern. And I know a number of people who are applauding you and Brad for the, your work on this. Why did it get that name, and what will this measure do? Huh. So, um, you know, that was um, enacted, uh, that law, uh, back in 1976. And in 1976, the Democratic Convention was coming to town, uh, to Manhattan, to Madison Square Garden. And you uh, had um, uh, a group of politicians, uh, Democrats in New York City, who feared that if the delegation or the, from the other states saw the prostitutes walking in the streets uh, with very little clothing on, that they would get the wrong impression of New York. And they wanted to sweep the streets, get rid of the prostitutes in Times Square. So they came to the state and they said, write this, this law or, or pass this law. And what the law did, essentially, was allow, based on what you look like or what you were dressed like, um, to arrest you 
uh, and charge you with a violation if it's a second arrest and misdemeanor. And essentially, it allowed sweeping the streets because it was not based on an act. It was based on what they thought you were going to do as a consequence of what you looked like. So it was used, it still is, or still was until you know, it was recently signed into law to repeal it, um, uh, often for um, women in clad clothing uh, in certain neighborhoods. In fact, it came down to about five neighborhoods in New York City. Uh, uh, Jackson Heights was one. And, but what it also did was it became an excuse to essentially harass the transgender community. Because if you're transgender, you still might have an Adam's apple. You may have larger arms or hands or feet because you were biologically born a man. So as a result, um, uh, you were distinguished when you wore your dress or skirt. And the police used it as a harassment tool. And, and so uh, if, and, and if you were trans, uh, often you went where you felt comfortable walking. You know, a lot of people who were trans, they go back to my town, right? And they're the doctor, the lawyer with the family that doesn't look different than their neighbor. So if they want to dress up, you know, a lot of cross-dressers, for example, they, they, go to, they go to another place. They go to Jackson Heights, where there are more trans, where there are people who look like them and where they can feel comfortable. So there would be congregations of, of people who are transsexual, and the police would use this law to harass them. They could be doing nothing more than you or me. They could be doing nothing more than going in and getting a malted in the neighborhood candy store, right? They could be doing nothing more than hailing a cab, nothing more than going food shopping, nothing more than standing and talking to their their neighbor and friends. But because they looked um, like men in the eyes of the police with an Adam's apple and they wore a skirt, it was an opportunity to harass a group of people that didn't look or feel like the like them, and and that's what it became. So walking while trans became the nickname because it was you walked while you were trans and you were arrested, and and so that's what the law turned into, you know, 40 years later, you know, um, and you know, or almost like a 45 years later. Right, so um, so we had to go. It was it was um, you know I I've said it's a female version of stop and frisk, and that's really what it was. It was you look like something, we're going to arrest you. If that same trans or that same woman in clad clothing was soliciting for prostitution, if they said on the street, "Come, I'm going to give you sex for money," they would be arrested. The verbal act would have allowed for an arrest, you know, and still is under the law. So we weren't legalizing uh, in any way prostitution. We were legalizing what they thought looked like someone who might commit prostitution. And you know what? People shouldn't be penalized for what they're thinking and what they look like. And that's really what this law did. It was the only law like it, and it needed to go. 
So that makes a lot of sense. Certainly a big a big difference between uh, appearance and, and intention there. And uh, that sounds like definitely something that uh, was was in, in dire need of uh, clarification and, and protections for people who might be uh, uh, wrongfully harassed or, or prosecuted for those reasons. Um, Assemblymember Paul, and I wish we had more time to talk about this and to talk about your other initiatives, but where can we send people who want to find out more about you and your work? Um, well, they could Google my name. I've got I've got an assembly website. If you go to New York State Assembly, you find me easily as well. Um, and uh, you know, all of my bills are posted on that website, so they can see what we're working on now. Some very exciting things we hope to make law. And I appreciate the opportunity to talk about these bills that have made um, um, me and my work much more meaningful. Assemblymember Amy Pollan, thanks so much for joining us today here on WBAI. So you're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. Celeste and Jeff here with you until 6 o'clock. And uh, this is actually kind of an important point. So the reason we are able to bring you lawmakers that are talking about important stuff like the gestational surrogacy laws or, you know, protecting uh, transgender rights, transgender people, uh, is through your generosity, through your help. So we just want to take a moment here. Here to remind you that if you want to support independent, non-commercial free speech programming, it's very easy to do that. All you have to do is go to WBAI.org and become a BAI buddy in the name of your favorite show. Maybe it's Driving Forces. Maybe it's City Watch. We have uh, programs across the spectrum, arts, culture, music, current events. Uh, it is very easy to join us in continuing to bring you this programming. You can give an any amount that you choose. Uh, we do have a uh, special uh, special offer right now for your donation of just $65. We will thank you with a wonderful BAI radio unisex t-shirt. It's comfortable. It's loose fitting. It comes in basic black, my favorite, favorite of all New Yorkers, 100% cotton. So check it out. Go to WBAI.org and just click ways to donate. That is uh, our gift for your contribution of $65. The real gift here, of course, is your support. And, of course, you know, we are in sweater weather right now, but in this weather, when we're all staying inside, we're wearing sweats and we're wearing T-shirts. Maybe not now, because Celeste and I get up and f get dressed up in formal gear, uh, formal attire for this show uh, to be able to, you know, up each other's game each week. But these shirts are wonderful. And I'm so glad that we're talking about that today because it's a wonderful gift that you can give to someone in your life to be able to show off your pride and their pride in WBAI. I mean, we're able to bring you these guests because this is independent, non-commercial, free speech community programming. And we've been around for 62 years now. We want to be around for 62 years or more. Uh, this is the place to go to where we let you also speak out on the issues that you care about. And we want to continue doing that. And I'll repeat the website address that Celeste mentioned before, WBAI.org. Go on today in the name of this show or any show that you like. Make a donation of $65 and get the WBAI Radio Unisex T-shirt. Again, in black, which is Celeste's favorite color. Mine is green. <laughs> uh, not about, that's not about money. It's just something I like about green. It's grass. Uh, but she likes black, so you'll get a wonderful WBAI Radio Unisex T-shirt. That website address is WBAI.org. And we also have a phone number. 
800-242-3602. Again, you've been listening to WBAI New York 99.5 FM, streaming live at WBAI.org. This is Driving Forces, and I'm Jeff Simmons, here with my lovely co-host, Celeste Katz-Marston, and this is our weekly show on policy, politics, and the issues that are dominating discussion. So now we're going to move to a new feature that Jeff and I have been sharing with you. Uh, We've been checking back with people that we spoke to for our 2020 series that we did. It was just called New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. And that was a series of about 16 interviews that we did with New Yorkers from all walks of life as the COVID uh, COVID COVID-19 pandemic really heated up. And now we're going to check back with those men and women to see what has changed since last we spoke to them. So today we're going to catch up with Dr. Dr. Rafael Hernandez. When I spoke to him last year, he was just starting his vocation as a resident physician treating COVID-19 patients at NYU Winthrop University Hospital. So let's listen back to this interview, and then he will be joining us live. You're listening to WBAI New York. I'm Celeste Katz-Marston. This is New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary. My name is Rafael Hernandez. Um, I was born in Cuba. I was raised in Miami, Florida. Currently, I'm um, working as a junior physician at NYU Winthrop Hospital. Working with COVID patients, it, it's a new experience. And um, in many ways, and in many ways, it's uh, similar to just treating your, your normal patients. As I got ready to uh, go into a, a, just a regular shift um, to treat my patients uh, with coronavirus, I try to keep things separate in, in my apartment. Uh, for for example, well, for the moment, I'm living away from my fiance to sort of a, try to um, prevent my um, infecting her with the virus if I do come into contact with the virus. You have to think to yourself at all times that you need to take certain precautions that don't necessarily come natural to you, like don't touch your face, make sure you clean your hands every time you touch a surface, uh, and make sure you things as simple as don't, don't don't lean against the walls unnecessarily to protect yourself and to protect your patients when you see them. I try to mentally keep myself um, in the moment and and uh, make sure that I, you know, that I interact with my patients at a at a real level and and still maintain contact with them without making them feel isolated. I think it, speaking to, to my COVID patients, I, I think that they, their sort of um, experience in the hospital is, is different. Um, there is a, a, a lot of fear and a, a lot of uncertainty with uh, this virus. Even, even us as uh, the um, physician community, you know, we, we are, we're learning of, of the virus as we go along. And, you know, it's uh, when we speak to our patients, for example, if they hear good news or the family members hear good news, you can hear, you know, you, you, they'll have a reaction of, of, of joy and, and shouting, clapping, uh, which is really amazing. Um, some patients come to tears when, when you tell them that they're getting better, that they, they're going to be sent home, which is, uh, I think it's something that's new and in particular to the virus because, uh, you know, because of all the fear, sometimes patients don't feel like they, they might make it. We have, I have had the patients that uh, unfortunately have, have not, uh, made it. And we, we, we have spoken to family members. Um, you know, the, the true heartbreaking part of all of this is that it's, it, it's the separation it causes. Uh, we've had, uh, unfortunately, um, situations in which not all family members who would want to be at the bedside have been able to be at the bedside when a patient has passed away. They, they've, they've been, they haven't been alone with, with the support of the nursing, 
nurses and the doctors, um, you know, they're, they're never alone. We had one patient, uh, unfortunately, who passed away. His family couldn't be by his side, but the nurse was by his side holding his hand um, at the last moment. Personally, we've, um, we have, we, every hospital is um, a little bit different. Uh, we were, we working uh, usually 12 hour shifts. There's a lot of support within the hospital, um, within our colleagues, uh, always asking, are you okay? Um, do you want to take a minute? I myself try to uh, keep uh, my schedule as balanced as I possibly can. Unfortunately, it's hard to uh, go outside and exercise, but I try to get enough sleep, make sure I keep myself eating uh, um, healthy foods and you know, make that a priority to try to be um, at my best when I do go into the hospital. When I first uh, was offered, um, was asked to if, if I could, would be willing to join as a junior physician right, out of, uh, right after graduating from medical school, my first instinct was, yes, of course. And then after that, sort of the fear settled in because you fear for your family members and those around you. Um, and then, of course, I, you know, I could reach the conclusion that I want to do it. And it has been an extraordinary, extraordinary experience. Um, it's something that I hope will make me a, a better uh, physician when I start my residency. And this experience, I would hope, would um, sort of help me understand where my patients are coming from. Rafael Hernandez is a junior physician treating COVID patients at NYU Winthrop Hospital. Stay tuned for more installments of New York in Crisis, WBAI's Coronavirus Diary, and for the latest news and updates on COVID-19. And we do want to thank the Associated Medical Schools of New York for putting us in touch with Dr. Hernandez. And we're now happy to welcome Dr. Rafael Hernandez back to WBAI. Thank you for joining us. Hey, Jennifer, how are you? Thank you for having me. So how have you been since Celeste and you last spoke for the original Coronavirus Diary segment? What, if, what has it been like having this kind of introduction to working as a doctor? Yeah, well, it's... Um... It's been interesting. So since then, I've started. I've actually moved to to Miami, Florida, and I've started my residency. I'm almost done with. Uh, I'm almost done with my first year of residency. Um, you know, it's, it's it's been an experience. It's been all of ups and downs. Um, I've had worked with COVID patients down here, with very critical patients, patients who have recovered, and others who have not. I've dealt with. Um, I've also um, sort of handled or dealt with family members who unfortunately has suffered losses um, due to COVID, pneumonia. Um, and, you know, it, it keeps going. So I think it's a learning experience. Um, and that's about it. Unfortunately, so much I can say, but I think, we're, I think we're getting a little bit better and things are hopefully looking up now. Well, Dr. Hernandez, I'm really glad to have a chance to talk to you again. And that's very interesting. So now you've had experience treating COVID patients in two different communities, two different states or two different cities. Um, you know, what is the difference, do you notice, between how things are, are going in New York and how things are going in Miami or how the healthcare systems are, are working? Is there, is there a big difference or really not too much difference? Yeah, so I think, um, oh, hey, Celeste, I hope you're doing well. It's, yeah, it's good to be back. Um, Thank you. So I, in terms of the, the healthcare system, I don't think there's much of a difference or in terms of, like, the, the treatment that we're giving patients. It's very, very similar. Um, it's, it's evolved since, since we've learned a lot more about COVID now uh, compared to uh, almost a year um, ago. So, uh, but otherwise, it's been pretty much the same. Uh, I think that... Uh, yeah, I think that's a, that's the biggest thing, the timeline. 
you know, now things are a little bit more clear and um, we treat patients with a little more certainty. So, yeah, yeah it was been, yeah. it was I definitely remember during our our last conversation as and as you said in the interview there were a lot of things at that time that we really did not know about uh even how uh covid-19 was transmitted and so on. Right, exactly. Yeah. Um I think that now I, I think now as a medical community we're a lot more confident um with treating our patients being able to give them give them diagnosis an idea of how how things are going what to expect even uh, treating patients outside in the clinic, not just in the hospitals, um, you know, and now we're giving the vaccine. Um, so, you know, we're in a whole, whole new phase. Um, so I think that's it's been very helpful, very positive experience. And um, Dr. Hernandez, I'm glad that you brought up the issue of the vaccine because that is something I also wanted to ask you about. Obviously, something we were not nearly ready to discuss when we did our, our first interview. But um, right. we we have been hearing from uh, people uh, even on this program, on this station, and we've been seeing in the news. Uh, for example, I just read a piece that said about a third of members of the armed forces are declining to receive the vaccine. Some of them, uh, they don't want it. They say that they would rather see how it affects other people before they take it. So I'm just wondering, what are your experiences with people who are hesitant about getting the vaccine and uh, especially in communities of color? Uh, and what do you tell people about about uh, the safety and the efficacy of the vaccine? Right. So, I mean, so far things have been, have been good with the vaccine. We've seen very little reactions, um, you know, there's a lot of, unfortunately, that's just the world we live in. There's a lot of, a lot of fear, uncertainty, a lot of, a lot of uh, misinformation. Um, I encourage every patient um, to to have the vaccine whenever possible. Um, I myself had the vaccine. Um, I had a positive experience with it. Uh, very little side effect. Um, you know, so what I tell my patients, you know, I tell them first of all, I recommend that you have this vaccine. Um, you know, the side effects that have been recorded from patients who have had the vaccine during the trial and since the vaccines have been released have been very small and nothing compared to the possible side effects of having the actual disease. And, um, you know, just just go over the basic things. I tell them, have you ever had a, an allergic reaction or a severe allergic reaction to a previous vaccine that you've had in the past, such as the flu vaccine? And if it's no... The answer is no, then I tell them with full confidence, I recommend that you take this vaccine. And, you know, I know our time with you is short. I'm thinking about, you know, my recent uh, visit to Elmhurst Hospital to help volunteer and just watching a lot of the attention that the essential workers were paying uh, and the staff were paying to people who were coming in to get the vaccine at this time. You know, this has been a very difficult period in our history. And I'm curious if you've had any positive moments, anyone you might have interacted with in a way that was just uplifting, that stand out uh, in your first year uh, as, as, in, in this profession? Uh, you mean in terms of uh, patients and families? Yeah, a patient interaction or just something you witnessed, something that made you feel confident that we're going to get through this, or just an interaction you had in this first year that really just stood out, made you say, "I'm so glad I am, at, you know, I am working in this profession at this time." You know, I think that um, I can't think of any specific interaction with with a patient or, or family. There have been so many, but one thing that I, I can tell you for sure is that you know that. Willingness, and I've been I've had pleasure working with amazing attendings. Uh, where where I was previously at NYU Winthrop, and where I am now at Jackson Memorial Hospital, and 
and sort of the willingness and to help and the, the you know the, the willingness to not give up regardless of what's going on and just the care that they demonstrate day in day out regardless of how many hours are put into you know put into a week uh, caring for patients that's very that, that in itself gives me a lot of hope and and I think that's what will get us through this and also I think I have seen a lot of positive um, positive reactions from patients uh, regarding the vaccine you know in my outpatient clinic I've actually had a lot of patients come out and tell me you know uh, in the past I've, I haven't had any vaccines but uh, you know regarding the, the usual vaccines that we that we have um, that we've had for many years but you know, can I have the COVID vaccine? I want to take, I want to get the COVID vaccine. You know, I do think that patients are, are you know, aware, they're listening, they're informing themselves and they're, you know, reaching out to their, to their doctors for more information and, and, you know, for help. So, and that, I think it's all pointing in a very good direction right now. And just finally, Dr. Hernandez, um, you know, how do you think the experience of of this pandemic and how fast it's moved and, uh, you know, sort of the, the depths of it now turning the corner, how everyone's uh, dealt with this, you know, is, how's that going to change the way you practice medicine going ahead or uh, either that or how do you think the American healthcare system will be different, will work differently now that we have had to deal with this this major crisis? Well, that's a, that's a big question. <laughs> um, you know, I, I for me, this was my first introduction into the healthcare system. So, in terms of like practicing uh, and being a re, uh, an intern, uh, a new physician. So, I think for me, this is sort of like set, set up the standard uh, of what I expect things will be from now on. Um, I think that things are, in terms of the just overall the information that's out there about medicine. I think that. A lot, there's been a lot of um, sort of a lot of ways in which you can get medical information, and I think this whole pandemic has made people aware of the possibility that the information you're getting from a non-medical source or from not not from your your primary care doctor, your doctor may not be correct. So I think it's, a lot of people have become a lot you know self-aware about that and, and learn to like check their sources and and uh, you know turn to the right people and the right sources for information, which is I think a very good thing. Dr. Rafael Hernandez, I want to thank you so much for joining us here on WBAI and bringing us up to date on your career and your work uh, in the medical profession. So thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you for having me. I appreciate it. And take care. Thank you. So All we're right. going to oh, thank you. So we're going to open up the phone lines in just a few moments. The number to call to weigh in on what you heard from uh, Assemblywoman Amy Paulin or from Dr. Rafael Hernandez or whatever else is on your mind. That number to call two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. That's two one two two zero nine two eight seven seven. And as we wait for the phone uh, lines to just light up, we're going to give you a musical interlude with Sly and the Family Stones, Underdog.
back. You're listening to Driving Forces here on WBAI New York. That was Sly and the Family Stone with Underdog. We are taking your calls, 212-209-2877, 212-209-2877. We were talking a little bit earlier about gestational surrogacy, new laws for uh, people who are trying to have kids through a surrogate. Uh, some people say this will expand out the ability to have a family to lots of people, uh, including members of the LGBTQ community. Other people say it's exploitation of women. What do you think? 212-209-2877. We have a caller right now. WBAI, you're on the air. What's your name and where are you calling from? Hello, my name is Eddie. uh, It's nice that that the gay couples can have children, even though um, the earth is going to be, how do you say, the ocean water is going to rise. And there's going to be a little bit less land for the populations. But um, the, to the doctor, uh, um, are they going to? I, I sometimes have to go to the hospital. But the problem is that they don't fix the ventilation with the ozone machine. You know, they just use like Windex to clean the surfaces. Uh, the ozone machine is a good sterilizing thing. And second, uh, um, what does he think about people keeping away from gluten products? which coats the uh, intestinal tract and stomach lining and um, make people more successful, according to some doctors that study Italy and other countries with the same population. And, okay. Um, okay, Eddie, thank you. Okay. Yeah, thank thanks, you so, thanks, thank Eddie, you for so your call. That was, there was a lot, there's a lot to unpack there, Jeff. There's a lot there to unpack. And uh, I guess technically it's not wrong to be concerned about the rising ocean levels. Uh, I think that, uh, you know, potentially there is, a, there, there is some, some reason to think about the future. Um, you know, as far as hospitals and, and uh, sterilization, I, I cannot, I cannot, uh, uh, I can't, uh, uh, say that I am an expert in this department. I was a little, I was a, a little bit uh, lost for words there. Um, and as far as gluten, I think that there is a test for a condition called celiac sprue. If people are uh, intolerant of gluten, how that plays into uh, treatment of or exacerbation of COVID nineteen. Uh, Jeff, why don't you uh, give us your expert opinion on, the, <laughs> I was on just that one? I was just going to go back to say that he did mention Windex, and I know from seeing my big fat uh, Greek wedding, whatever that movie was years ago, that Windex solves everything. Anyway, <laughs> uh, <but> I, <laughs> oh yeah, that's right, that's right. That was in that that was in that movie. But, but uh, I do, I know we only got like three minutes left. But I mean, right. not to end on um, you know on a sad note, but I did want to mention this today. I mean, some really troubling news, given how COVID has impacted our life expectancy. I'm not sure if you had read anything about this. Wow. But, but yeah, no, over, they looked at the first, what, six months of last year and life expectancy in the United States dropped um, by a full year during the first six months of 2020. And this was the largest drop since World War II. Now, Celeste, I also know that you've been very upset this week because, you know, we lost uh, two not as Not as upset as I am now that you told me the life expectancy <laughs> well, thing. Well, you know, you're still uh, getting over the fact that uh, another uh, radio pioneer, Rush Limbaugh, passed away and also dealing with the fact that uh, that Trump's uh, hotel and casino was brought to the ground down in Atlantic City. And I know that's been rough for you. Well, if if you had any proof, needed any proof that uh, life is much too short, Jeff, I think you have just given it to all of us, all the listeners here at WBAI. So why don't you tell us what's going on on Sunday? 
Ah, David Brand, co-host of City Watch, Sunday morning at 10 a.m. He'll be in the anchor seat, and he told me he's got two fantastic guests. One, U.S. Congress member Carolyn Maloney, who we've had here on uh, WBAI talking about many issues, including the Second Avenue subway. Uh, but I'm sure she'll want to be able to talk about what is has been going on in Washington, D.C., uh, this year. And also, he's got Vanessa Gibson, council member from the Bronx, who has announced that she's running to become the next Bronx borough president. Well, that should be a good program. So tune in to City Watch on Sunday. And that's at what time, Jeff? 10 a.m. 10 a.m. And when David Brand is not hosting, you can hear another outstanding member of the uh, radio pantheon hosting that show. What's what's that guy's name again? Uh, Celeste Katz-Marston. No. <laughs> exactly. So we want to wrap up. Thank you to our guest today, Assemblymember Amy Pollan, and to Dr. Rafael Hernandez from our New York in Crisis WBAI's Coronavirus Diary Series. You can find that on WBAI.org. Thanks always to our Reg, uh, Reggie, who is our engineer, makes this program program possible. If you missed any part of the program, you can find it on the WBAI website, and you can check out Driving Forces on SoundCloud, Twitter, and Facebook. So stay tuned to WBAI for more great programming. We'll be back with you soon. See you on the radio. with Bobby McFerrin on an album entitled Rendezvous in New York. And in this time of COVID here in New York, most New Yorkers are wearing face masks. But then there's the guy on the street corner smoking a cigarette not wearing a mask. The woman talking on her cell phone who thinks the person on the other end won't hear unless she pulls her mask off. And what about that couple who walk by? A woman's mask is below her mouth and the guy's mask is below his nose. Well, the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, has now recommended that we wear two face masks because of variant strains of the virus. And for masks to fit snugly, a cotton mask on top of a surgical mask may offer 95% protection from exposure to aerosols and tiny particles that could contain the coronavirus. Well, WBAI has 100% cotton masks for you with our logo and the saying keep free speech radio alive we have these for you you can wear these over other masks for better protection they are washable and come in white or black please call 516-620-3602 to order your cotton face mask for a tax deductible contribution of $35 or buy two masks for $70 you can also go to our donation site go to give to wbai.org to order your WBAI face masks. Again, the phone number is 516-620-3602. You'll be helping to keep Free Speech Radio alive here on WBAI in New York. We live in complicated times. Sometimes it seems like important voices get left out, and sometimes it's hard to know who to trust. But one thing's for sure, 
For more than 60 years, WBAI has been your go-to for independent, non-commercial, free speech programming. Join the WBAI family as a BAI buddy in the name of your favorite show today and support radio you can trust. It's easy. Just go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602. That's 516-620-3602. When you become a WBAI buddy, you show your support for great programs on politics, news, the arts, music, and culture. You show your support for real free speech radio. Go to WBAI.org or call 516-620-3602 now. Don't wait. You know these times are too important. Please give as generously as you can. It's simple to make a recurring monthly donation, and it only takes a minute. Just go to WBAI.org and click Ways to Donate. Unlike living in New York, it is that easy. WBAI has spoken up for New Yorkers for more than 60 years. Now, it's time to speak up for WBAI. Go to WBAI.org to support radio you can trust. Give to WBAI today. Be heard. 